0: So last night, I one of those slow nights when it comes to sports. I am a sports addict. I can't wait. Pitchers and catchers have reported uh, to Florida. Baseball is around the corner. Football's over. I am a Hawks fan. That's terrible. I know. They stink. Um, but we're in the all-star break, and I could care less to watch any of the all-star stuff, uh, the slam dunk competition Anyway. So it was just a a lazy night with really nothing to watch. And I ended up getting sucked into a documentary about the hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams. What a tragedy. I mean, really, if you study his life, if you look at his life, I mean, he wrote so many songs, had this tumultuous life, was you know came from poverty, came out from nothing, um, had a gift of being able to turn a phrase and write a song, and he just kind of grabbed life by the throat and just went for it, and he died at the age of, I think, 28, 29, ended up having a morphine overdose in the back of a car going to another concert just a tragic story but the guy man he could write a song he could write a song you know early in his life when he was struggling with addiction he was asleep in the back of the car and his mom was driving him and they looked up and an airplane was was coming down to, to fly and and she said she said hank do you see the light He gives his life to the Lord, and he writes, I saw the light, I saw the light. He writes this beautiful song, I See the Light, just this expression of what was happening in his life at that moment. I'm so lonesome I could cry, he writes, in the midst of struggles with his wife and his kids not being with him. He dies, and one of his most famous songs comes out after his death. Your cheating heart will tell on you. Can you imagine being his wife and he dies? And then the next song that comes out is about your cheating heart. I mean, the guy, the guy, the the hillbilly Shakespeare, Hank Williams. I bring that up because songs had this weird thing about the music, songs, lyrics, they allow humanity to express certain things. It taps beyond the mind and it goes down into the heart, the soul. Songs are are, are special. They're unique. For me, I on the way to Bible college back and forth, we was a three to four day drive. And there are there were me and a buddy would would drive back and forth and and we would get a few new albums, a few new songs, we'd pop the CDs in, and like to this day, to this day. If I I listen to any song on Dave Matthews' crash, I'm immediately taken back to like some abandoned road in Utah or I'm working my way through Like Songs have this power, don't they? To bring back memories, to evoke emotion. Songs can be used for good, can express pain, joy, can also be used for evil. No, know, God created music. God created songs, and he did that for humanity. In fact, a lot of our activity of heaven will be surrounding songs and singing and praise. But I love the fact that, like, we have in the Bible this song of songs that has nothing to do with worship. <laughs> Thought about that. This is not a worship song. It would be really weird if it were, but it's not. And yet we have this this incredible song, the song of songs, the opus of all songs right there in the middle of our Bible. God enabling humanity to express feelings, to express emotions. You're cheating heart, or I saw the light. Interesting that God gives us an avenue of expression that goes beyond our mind, goes beyond our thoughts, speaks from someplace different deeper within. You know, not all songs have to be worship songs. In fact, we employ songs and, and the, the Hebrews did as well to teach. In fact, right now, with the kids in our, our Sunday school class, they are learning the books of the Bible. And you know how? Through a rap song. These are the books of the Bible. And my daughter's singing it. We sing songs. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Oh, baby, let my people go. To teach, to learn, to express. I love the fact that we have not just this poem, but this song. It's lyrical. And it goes beyond the head and it goes deep to a place within. Now, the second verse of chapter five of the Song of Solomon. While the Song of Solomon is, it's a, it's a rock opera. It's a collection of songs put together, knowing that there's at at best maybe some loose chronology, but nothing hard, not not a a definitive story, but just an expression of different times. We do find uh, at least some type of a transition with the second verse of chapter five into a second phase of this relationship that we have between the Shulamite and the beloved. Chapter four was very explicit, it was erotic. At the end of chapter three, they come together. This marriage ceremony, and then they go to the marriage bed, and this celebration of sex. We get to verse one. God interjects. He says, "Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones." God puts his stamp of approval as to what was going on. But now that we move onward into the book, it seems as though we now we have a, a married couple. This is at no point the honeymoon night. They're uh, they're married. We don't have any kind of an idea of how long they've been married, at what point in their lives Uh, these these particular songs uh, express certain moments, but here they are, they've been married for some time. We don't know how much. And with any married couple, you do know at some point, like reality hits you of the decisions that you've made. Like you have what we call the honeymoon phase and you're still love blind, you're love drunk. But there's a moment at some point that the, the endorphins and, and the chemicals and the, the rushes kind of subside and you roll over and you look and you're like, oh, okay, for life. I ran across this illustration. It's a vignette by a guy named uh, Russell Dix. It's recorded in one of the commentaries that I'm reading solomon on sex by joseph Adillo. let me read this is from the perspective of a pastor standing before the preacher to be married the minister says to the groom do you take this woman with all her immaturity self-centeredness nagging tears and tension to be your wife forever the dumb ox temporarily hypnotized by the prospects of being able to sleep with her every night mumbles i do Then the preacher asks the young starry-eyed bride, do you take this man with all his lusts, moods, indifference, immaturity, and lack of discipline to be your husband forever? She thinks that forever means all of next week because she has never experienced one month of tediousness, responsibility, or denial of her wishes, so she chirps, I do. Then the patient minister parrots, now by the authority committed to me by Christ, I pronounce you man and wife. And as he does... He prays a silent prayer of forgiveness, for he knows he lies. They are not now husband and wife, and he knows that few of them ever will be. They are now legally permitted to breed, fuss, bully, spend each other's money, and be held responsible for each other's bills. It is now legal for them to destroy each other, so long as they don't do it with a gun or a club. And the minister goes home wondering to himself if there isn't a more honest way To earn a living. (laughs) Marriage. Marriage is rough. It's tough. It's it's the one thing. It's the one institution. That God instituted. Before sin. Again within the creation narrative. Within the story chapter 2. God brings the woman to Adam. And he says leave your father and mother. Be joined together. One flesh, God performs the first marriage ceremony. Their marital vows, their, this commitment, this oneness, it all was designed by God, created by God, instituted by God. One man, one woman, together, one flesh for life without sin. Now, what is our challenge? Well, now we have one man and one woman who are no longer perfect, trying to achieve a perfect oneness. And therefore, marriage is tough. We're doing something that has an ideal and a perfect world, but we're trying to achieve it in fallenness. Not just fallenness within ourselves, but fallenness within the world itself. The trials, the tribulations, the toughness. You see, God wants your marriage to succeed, and he wants your marriage to be a beautiful expression of divine realities, and he wants there to be oneness and this connection with with God, with Akkad, the one. But there are a lot of forces in this world that don't want your marriage to succeed and instead want your marriage to be destroyed. See, Satan knows that he can rip a person off by destroying their marriage. Satan knows the permanent damage that's created. The wounds that are fostered, marriage. God's ideal in the garden, but we're living in a fallen world. So we need God. Now, I love the first section we're going to encounter here. Because this this marital couple, this, this Shulamite and her beloved, they're going to find themselves, the honeymoon being over, in a place of conflict. Like things are not all rosy. Things are not all peachy. They have a problem. Let's look at it. Verse two of chapter five, the Song of Solomon, the, the the Shulamite speaking here. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. Now there's a little debate in regards to is she actually asleep? Is she dreaming? Or is she in that kind of like that, that middle slumber, you know, where you're kind of dozing in and out, you're awake, you've got a lot on your mind, you've got a lot on your heart, you're trying to sleep, you're struggling to sleep, you're kind of in this limbo, but you're awake. Either way, I sleep, my heart is awake. Something is on her heart, something is troubling her, and then she says, it is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. There's so much we don't know about the scene or the story or what the setup is. And again, it's a song, so we're not entitled to all of the information other than the reality of the dynamic. You have here the Shulamite, she has gone to bed. There seems to be an implication of a longing for her husband. We don't know why he's not there. Could it be that he was at work or he was held over late? Again, only speculation, we don't know. But she's in bed alone and her heart is longing and she's struggling and she's wrestling. And then her husband shows up at the door. Now, we don't know why the door's locked. We don't, we don't know the particular details of this. But it's late. We know it's late because of the description. He, he says, my head is covered with dew. My locks with the drops of the night. So this is late enough into the night to be approaching morning. The dew has set. So he's come back, work trip, late night out. Again, we don't know, but he's wet with the dew. He's coming late. She's already in bed. She's been restless. So he wants in. Open for me. There's a warmth a warmth to his appeal. But verse three, she says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? Well, you could just put it on. I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? Now, again, customarily within this culture, they've had dirt floors often. It was normal that upon entering the bed, you would wash your feet before you got in. You know, kind of like your strategy at any type of a beach condo, you know, the worst thing, isn't it getting sand in the bed and it's just, it's like sandpaper and you just got to clean the feet. I always put a towel out next to the bed when we're on vacation, just to wipe my feet off. So she's, she's taken off her nightgown. She's gotten into bed. She's cleaned her feet. It's late. Keep in mind, it's almost morning and he shows up. And what does he want? He wants to make love. And he's making an appeal. He's not demanding. He's, he's an asking, "Will you open the door?" And, and her response, her retort, is, "No." <laughs> and she makes up excuses, and let's be honest, they're just excuses. Why? Because she could easily get up, rewash the feet, not a big exercise. She could put back on a rope, or leave it off. He, you know, save some time. So he's outside the door, soaking wet, come back late. He wants to get lucky. He wants to make love to his woman. She's already in bed, restless, a little groggy. She's prepped. This is inconveniencing. And so she says no. Verse four, my beloved put his hand by the latch of the door and my heart yearned for him. So she's laying there and she can hear the latch of the door rattle. Now there are uh some commentators that tried to, to read into this, some sexual innuendo. Um, and, and there's some justification just because of some of the words that have already been used earlier in the song of Solomon that could give license to that, but it doesn't fit the narrative. Um, it would be weird. She's just said, no, now they're going to have sex, but then he's not there. It just doesn't fit. The mo- more print, plain reading of this is that he, he knocks. Will you open the door? There's an invitation. She's like, ah, I got to wash my hair. I'm tired, I'm sleepy, I'm already in bed. And so he kind of rattles the handle to see if maybe it, was, it, was, it would be opened or it was already left unlocked for him. He's just making sure. And it's in this moment that she hears this and, and she says, she, she confesses, she says, my heart yearned for him. This word yearned, it, it's an interesting word. She literally gets horny. She's like totally not interested. She's rebuffed his advances. She's not going to open. She hears the latch and then she's thinking, oh, okay. Like she's, her passion gets stirred up. She's like, well, maybe I do want this. So verse five, she arose to open. So she gets up to open for my beloved. But my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave no answer. You you get the scene, you get the picture. He shows up, open, nah, not feeling it, honey. So he turns and he leaves. And it's it's in that moment that she's like, Oh, I might have made a mistake. She gets up, she opens the door. Now he's not there, and and the roles are reversed. She's crying out, but he's not to be found. He's left. Now we again. This is this is poetic. This is um, um, illustrative. It's not a literal story. This didn't like. Where did he go? It doesn't matter where he went. He wasn't found. You know, he's a gentleman, isn't he? You know, there there is a a preference to him. There's no. Uh, guilt trip that he puts on her he asks politely she turns him down he doesn't pitch a fit throw a tissy she he tries the latch it's not it's not unlocked and he leaves he's a, he's a divine gentleman in the sense that he does prefer her wishes now his, he's hurt his sexual advances have been rebuffed now, let's be real. Both people are at complete fault here. That's the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll just read a quick section for you. Paul says, the wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And we've talked about that in previous studies, so we'll leave that there. But then Paul exhorts a married couple. He says, do not deprive one another speaking of sex except with the consent for a time so this was arranged that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer i've never found a couple in marriage counseling that's like yeah we're we've decided we're taking a break from having sex so we can pray and fast <laughs> i've never run into a couple like we're having sexual problems because he prays too much come together again and then this is why Paul says, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So on one aspect, he comes to his wife and he's he's wanting to make love to her, and she's like, no, this is an inconvenience. I um, I'm already read, I'm already in bed. I've already wound down for the night. She says no. Now his fault. He comes in the middle of the night. Like, again, if we're being honest and fair to the situation, he's not giving her any courtesy. He's not preferring her. He's come back from wherever he's come from, soaked with dew, ready to jump into bed, whether she's ready or not. Ready or not, here I come, honey. She's like, no, 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 no. Now, she should have said, yes, my husband is back. My heart's been yearning. Let me take care of you. But he should have never been trying to make a move when she's already asleep. It took me, like, 16 years of marriage to realize that that's not a good move. You know, I get into bed and it's late, and I snuggle up and she's snoring, and and all I get is the, the is the awkward dolphin. Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> nah, ah. ah, ah. Eh, 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 eh. well, why not? I'm sleeping, that's why not. You could have come to bed earlier. I didn't know I wanted it till now. I mean, you know, I I love the beauty of this. Because I say this, you guys giggle, and you giggle why? Because it's so relatable like even beyond just the context of of being at night I mean have you ever found times in your marriage heaven forbid I'm the only one where you're really excited about doing it and she ain't or she is and you're tired like it just it just seems that like that that tends to be a normal occurrence it's like if only we could like Match up at the same time. Well, we're broken and we're fallen. And it doesn't always happen like that. And, and, and we have here this this picture of something that we all relate to. We all get it. We're all like, hey, the ladies, y'all, I didn't even need to commentate. You're like, wait a second. He shows up with dew on his head. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on team woman, team Shulamite. And the fellows are like, I've been, I've been out. I've been doing what I've been doing out in nature. I've been a man. I'm coming home. Fellows are like, shame on her. Like naturally, I don't even have to comment. You're like, two camps, relatable. They're both wrong. Ultimately, they're both wrong because they're both being Selfish. Not that not I'm just going to rip on both of them. He should never have showed up that late. He's not preferring her. He's not being selfless towards her. He's not thinking about her needs, preferring her needs above his own. And she's doing the exact same thing, vice versa. They're both thinking about themselves first. And that's always a problem when it comes to marriage, when we're looking out for ourselves and not the other person. So we have them here. And, and so she gets up and she's feeling guilty. She's, she's turned down her man. She's like, that wasn't a good call. She jumps up and he's gone. I called, but he gave me no answer. You know, whether or not this is what she's doing or, or isn't doing, I should say that it's worth noting We can play games with our spouse and they can be fun. They can even be sexual and we can tease and tat and go back and forth. But there's always a line, isn't there? And sometimes we cross that line with our playful banter and we've hurt someone's feelings. Like marriage should be fun and, 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 and there can be all kinds of flirtation and goofing off and this, that, and the other, but, but you gotta, you gotta know your spouse. And she realizes like, I, I, I have made a mistake here and she feels guilty. And so she, she's, she's desperate. Verse seven, the watchmen who went about the city, they found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, please tell him that I am lovesick. Now, again, this is a a song. Is she running around the city in her nightgown? And are the watchmen beaten up on her in an actual sense? No, no, that would be crazy and silly. But what she's describing as a torment She's longing for him, and now she can't find him. There is a separation. There is a distance, and she's longing. And she cries out to the daughters of Jerusalem. She's like, if you find my beloved, if you find him, if you see him, please tell him to come home. I am lovesick. And and again, this word lovesick, it's an interesting word. We've encountered it in chapter 2, verse 5. She's, she's aroused sexually, but this word in the Hebrew also has the, an inclination of a sense of dread. She's longing for him. She's longing from a place of lacking. And she's not sure where he is or if he'll come home. She knows she's hurt his feelings, she's rebuffed his advances, and he's gone. And there's this de- de- a desperation within her. She's searching throughout the city. There's a torment. There's a frustration. Tell him if you see him. Now, again, within the song itself, you end up with this chorus. She's addressed the daughters of Jerusalem. Now they interject. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O fairest among women. What is your beloved more than another beloved, that you so charge us. Basically, what, what they're saying is they're saying, hey, uh, what's so special about this guy? In fact, the council here of, these, of these, this chorus of women is, hey, there's other fish in the sea. Like, this guy can't be that special. He's gone. That's fine. You made a mistake. You find another, another, another man. Like, what makes him so unique, so special, that you're so desperate to find him, to, to, to reconcile with him? Why not just move on? Plenty of other catches out there. What makes him so special? That you're so lovesick, so lovesick, and, and there's kind of an irony to this, that you rejected him already. Like, clearly this guy is, is not a hunk of burning love because you just rebuffed him. So you rebuffed him. It ain't working. It's not jiving. Move on. Find somebody else. You don't have to work through it. As so indicative of secular counseling, secular marriage counseling. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone that goes to marriage, they're seeking marriage counseling, not in a Christian context, not from a biblical worldview, but purely from a secular standpoint and almost universally because you are about uh, me, myself, and I, that that you are your own holy triunity. Triunity. That the preference is, well, what makes you happy? What satisfies you? The the advice that's often given isn't selflessness. It's not preference of the other person. It's, well, what do you need? What will make you happy? he can tell you how many couples I've run into that have gone to secular counseling and the counselor was like, y'all should get divorced. No big deal. Everybody does it. You're not compatible. The flames fizzled out. This is what the daughters of Jerusalem, this is the counsel that they're giving. What's the big deal? He's gone. Move on. As opposed to the exhortation of, like, hey, um, yeah, I know your husband is is a pain in the neck. Um, You're not too hot yourself. Tends to be how I begin counseling. You're both very broken. And my best advice to you is um, they've at least already told you that they'll, they'll hang out with you. Um, you can try to find another fish in the sea, but th- th- they also suck. Basically, it's like he might not be that great, but don't think you can do a lot better. I know that's rough. Hey, I'm thankful that I outpunted my coverage with Jessica. Like, we went through a real difficult time where my wife loved me and I could do nothing. My arms didn't work. I'm flopping around like a dead fish. And she had to feed me and bed me and wipe me. I mean, and I finally got better. And you know what she she suggested? You know, we should renew our vows. I said, no chance. (laughs) I already know. That till death do us part, and in sickness and in health, you want to remove from the new vows. <laughs> I said, "Nah, uh No, I locked you down. And for better, for worse. That's how it begins, for better, for worse. Implying what? There'll be a lot of worse. And there'll be better. So they give this counsel. What's so good about him? Now, I love this. Verse 10, beginning with verse 10, down through verse 16, she's going to say what's great about him. Now, now we should note a few things. One, she doesn't say these things to him. Okay? She says these things to her girlfriends, who have questioned whether or not they should be together. What makes him so special? You, You know, ladies... Don't get me wrong, your husband loves when you talk him up. Most guys, though, already have an inflated sense of ego. It's like perfection. You're lucky. But you know, but but men do love when their woman talks them up to others. When your woman speaks kind words about you. You know, it's a shame that, that so often little girl groups, again, I'm not part of them. Um, I've read about them. Um, I've seen TV shows about them. But they get together and oftentimes what, what happens? They talk bad about their men. They complain about their men. They speak ill about their men. They degrade their man. And then you wonder why your girlfriends are like, yeah, you should dump the bomb. Why? Because you've described him as a bum. She's going to rebuff their advice by exalting her husband. Now, there's something else that happens here. Again, the whole story began because she got selfish, self-indulged, turned him down. And now in the process, she's remembering what she loves. Like, that was so stupid. Like, why did I do that? Like, I love this man. And she's going to remind herself of the things that she loves about him. Like, you know, most people get divorced because of irreconcilable differences. You know, very few people get married because of irreconcilable differences. Hey, you and I seem like we're very not compatible. Let's get married and spend forever together. Like, that's not how it starts. It starts by what? You think you're totally compatible. You're like, I finally found the right person. She gets me, man. No, she doesn't. Give it some time. You'll be a mystery. Like, he's so sensitive. Yeah, right now. (laughs) Give him some time. Like, we don't go in, like, we go into it thinking, like, this is the perfect person. We just fit together perfectly. (laughs) So often when when we get deeper into the marriage, deeper into the relationship, all these quote irreconcilable differences, you know what an irreconcilable difference is? it's it's a it's a difference. it's a, it's an issue that you're just foolish and not dealing with. It's only irreconcilable because you're not willing to reconcile it. Like just get over yourself and deal with it. because irreconcilable differences is is, is the is the explanation. it's the excuse for divorce when I can't actually point to one thing. Now, if you walk in you're like, I'm divorcing this person because they cheated on me and committed adultery. Okay, gotcha. That's a big one. Or they're beating on me. Yeah, that, that that's a biblical one. But like I, irreconcilable differences are like, hey, there's just a whole mountain of stuff I can't name, but I just don't like. That's what it is. But you don't begin your relationship with that. You begin your relationship with none of that. And so sometimes when you're dealing with a marital conflict, when you're struggling, you know the best thing for you to do Stop looking at the things you don't like about the man or the woman and try to get back to the things that that, that draw you to that person to begin with because those things are still there. They've just gotten lost in the pile of garbage. You're a hoarder. You can't see the TV because there's a bunch of garbage. So go back to the things because they're there. There was a reason you got married. There's a reason you made a vow. There's a reason that you had made this commitment. So go back to the, the, those things. And this is what she does. He's not present. Let's look at it. She says, my beloved is white. <laughs> I don't know why I find that so funny. I just, you know, that's one of the things my wife loves about me. The word white, it, it, it just means beautiful in the Hebrew. And ruddy, this word ruddy, it can mean that, that she's describing kind of his reddish, either hair or his cheeks, his vitality. Uh, David was described as being handsome and ruddy. And we understand that, that within that context, David, King David had red hair. The, the word here in the Hebrew, it's Adama. It's actually the same word that, that God used to name man, man. Adam So so it could be that she's saying, "Hey, he's beautiful, he is handsome, and he is manly. He's a man." I, let me say, women like a man. If your wife isn't a lesbian, she likes a man. So don't be her girlfriend. Be a man. She is attracted to the fact that he is a dude, and he is a man, and he's got no problems being a man. Now there's some things that come with that, some smells, some belches, some noises. But she's not. She's not like oh he no he's a man, and I love the fact he's handsome and he's manly. He's like Adam, the first man, chief among 10,000. she's like, hey, you're telling me I can go find another another fish in the sea? But I'm telling you that my man, no. No, he's chief among 10,000. I can't do better. I love this man. I admire this man. I respect this man. His head is like the finest gold. And his locks are wavy and black as a raven. So he's got he's got black hair, but, but she's speaking of of his of his head, like the finest gold. It's excellent. There's an excellence about her man, and again, right right now, the, the, until we get to the hair, the, there's not a, exactly a physical attribute she's describing. She's speaking of his character, of who he is. Chief among ten thousand, his head is gold. He's excellent. He's refined. He's pure. His locks are wavy black. As a raven, his eyes are like doves. Now she's repeating some of the things that, that he has said about her. There's, there is a tenderness. Again, not eyes like a, like a carnivore, like a condor. I got it out. Looking for prey. No, no, no. There's a tenderness, a meekness. His eyes like doves by the rivers of water washed with milk firmly set i have no idea what she's talking about but she loves his eyes his cheeks are like a bed of spices this word cheek um some of you guys are going to really love this can be translated more accurately His beard is like a bed of spices. His beard, his facial hair. She likes to nestle up into it. The smell, which by the way, he has facial hair that he takes care of and he oils it because it smells. He doesn't look like he's in a biker gang or an extra on Sons of Anarchy. No, he's got it put together, but she likes it. Cuts his jawline. Banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with burl. And she likes his hands. No doubt, calluses, strength. Big old paws. His body is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. That's what Jessica says about me. (laughs) His legs are pillars of marble set on basis of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And this is my friend, O oh daughters of Jerusalem. Hey, what's so special about this guy? Well, let me tell you what a beautiful picture. And in her summary, as you know, my man, he's altogether lovely. Again, Earlier on, we talked about how the man saw his woman as perfection. Now, was that reality? No, there's no way she's perfect. No woman is. But from his vantage point, there was no better woman than her, that she was his standard of beauty, and it would be that way forever. As she changes, his standard changes. The most beautiful woman else, my wife. But she's doing the same thing here. In this statement, he is altogether lovely. Is that true? No. Not altogether. Like she's using this absolute statement. Every part of him. No, he's a sinner. He's got corks and mediated secrecies and, and problems. He's a man. But from her vantage point, what is she saying? That's my man. That's my standard of masculinity. That's my standard of manliness, of beauty. You can chisel him out. That's my dude. Now, men change too. But what would she say? She would change it. You know? His body, instead of carved ivory, is like a beautiful keg and laid was, it, cha- you know, it's no longer ivory. It's, it's like a, a firm pillow. <laughs> but as they get older and as he changes, his locks are wavy and black as a raven. His locks are kind of there, <laughs> and little parts and pieces. Like it would change. But she reminds herself, this is my dude. This is my beloved. This is my man. Now, when you get to chapter six, there's a little debate. Is this the continuation of the same song, et cetera? We'll we'll leave that. In closing, I do want to add one one wrinkle. And I'm going to do something that I actually said I probably wouldn't do, but it's just too easy to do it. And that is allegorize something. If you go back to verse two, I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks saying open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. I am not one to allegorize the song of Solomon. We we noted that in our introduction. Um, I don't think that this is about God and his relationship with Israel. I don't think this is about Jesus and his relationship about the church or Jesus in you. I think it's about a man and a woman and their life together and all that goes into that. That being said, of all of the verses in the Song of Solomon, that you could possibly find a quotated parallel in the New Testament. Again, Jesus doesn't quote from the Song of Solomon. Paul doesn't. Peter doesn't. John doesn't. Nobody else does. But of all the places that you could make a link is this verse and it's parallel, which is Revelation 3, verse 20. So Jesus is writing to the churches. I'll read it for you. Jesus says to his church. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Whether this is a direct parallel or not, the imagery does carry over. For Jesus, for everyone, at some point he comes to your heart, your soul, your life, and he's knocking Will Jesus kick down the door? No, he won't. Jesus will ask, will you open? Will you let me in? I want to be with you. I'm here. I'm knocking. All you got to do is turn the knob, undo the latch, and I'll come in. I will dine with you and you with me. That Jesus comes to everyone, and he's a gentleman, and he knocks. He doesn't pressure you. He doesn't push on you. He just simply says, will you let me in? He is a divine gentleman, that Jesus. He forces himself upon no man or woman. In fact, the only reason that people go to hell is it's their wish to be separated from God for they wanted nothing to do with God. Jesus has knocked and he's knocked and he's knocked and they have rebuffed his advances. And thus they want eternity apart from him. You see, no one will be able to say You never knocked. For Jesus will say, no, I did. You never opened. And I don't know you. And depart. Yeah, there is the the, the marital application. we've, We've gone through that. But there is, in an allegorical sense, a picture here worth noting. How long does Jesus knock? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. How often, how frequently can you rebuff, can you refuse before Jesus gets the point? Is it all the way up until death? Well, for some people it is. There's examples of that. But I know just as many other people that there's no presence of God in their life anymore. Why? Because he's a gentleman and he has feelings. His advances have been rebuffed. And at some point, I do believe Jesus would say, you know, okay. I get it. You don't want anything to do with me. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, that's not you. Because I believe that Jesus is using these words to knock on the door of your heart. If you've never opened the door, do so. Do so. Why wouldn't you? And if you need a reason to, if you need some convincing, like this woman, think about him. Think about who he is. Think about his character. Eyes like a flame of fire. Read Revelation 1. Get a picture of Jesus. Meek, mild picture of manliness. The second Adam. Perfect. One that will never leave you nor forsake you. It's peace. A wonderful counselor, a mighty God, worthy of opening the door to. So, Father, we just let that idea.